0: If you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to continue our look in this passage of Scripture, starting at verse 10. Uh, just in case some of you were wondering, you know, as we have a new bulletin where the order of service is, it's actually, we put that on the front. So if you didn't notice that yet, that's where the uh, information is for us uh, as we're You know, if you're looking at what's coming up next. (laughs) I'd like to pray for us as we begin, and then I'm going to be reading the text as we go through it this morning. So let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you that you are the one who has given us this word to guide us in our daily life. And all of it is profitable. All of it speaks to the issues that we are dealing with in our world and what's going on in the church today, and it is relevant for us. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear these words again as we um, talk about the danger of false teachers in the church, in the world around us, and how their aim is to take us away from you. Father, help us to be wise in the way we live and to put Christ first in our heart. Amen. When I was growing up, one of the highlights for me as a kid growing up on the farm was the Marshall County Fair. It came every July, usually the third or fourth weekend, and like most county fairs in Minnesota, there were, it was pretty heavy on the agricultural exhibits. You know, you had the farm animals and the crops that people were bringing in and the uh, farm machinery that was there that was always fun to see. But as a 10-year-old boy, I remember my eyes were set on the carnival, the midway, and the uh, games of chance that were there. And uh, in particular, when I was young, uh, one of the games that I really was attracted to or wanted to do was the one where you've got the uh, little, you know, kind of claw or crane inside this glass box, and it's got all these prizes laying there on the bottom, kind of in sand, I think it was, that they had at that time. And you had to maneuver this little claw over whatever you hoped you could get so it would drop just perfectly and capture the prize that you were seeking. Uh, they had stuffed it with things that, you know, a little boy would be interested in. You know, I'm not sure how you'd use all of these things, but they had things like pocket knives and lighters and compasses and rings and things like that that were in there. And I would, I would put in my dime, and I'd try to maneuver this thing around to capture what I got. And I was sure I could win. Unfortunately, it didn't happen too often. And when I did win... What I discovered was that the prize that I got usually turned out to be junk. It just didn't last. They promised, but they couldn't deliver. Their prizes looked attractive and enticing, but it didn't satisfy. And I also learned a, a very good biblical lesson that a fool and his money will soon be parted. <laughs> Well, that is exactly how Peter describes the false teachers of his day. They promised freedom and fulfillment, but they could not deliver. Instead, they led people into greater darkness and sin, and sadly, they are still around today. I want you to listen to the warning that Peter gives here. I'm going to read for us verses 10 to 16, starting at the, the second half of verse 10. "'Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid "'to slander celestial beings. "'Yet even angels, although they are stronger "'and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations "'against such beings in the presence of the Lord. "'But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. "'They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, "'born only to be caught and destroyed, "'and like beasts they too will perish.' They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes. They revel in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. And they have left the straight way and have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We'll stop there. Peter wants us to listen to the warning that he is giving here. And he tells us that the aim of a false teacher is to lead you away from Christ. Now they may claim to be Christian, they may even be in the church, but their aim is to lead you away from a pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ and that is why they are so strongly condemned in the new testament not only here by peter but also by paul for example in galatians 1:9 paul wrote that if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted what you heard from the apostles let him be eternally condemned and we need to hear that i mean You know, Jesus also talked about the danger of false teachers. His strongest kind of condemnation was for Pharisees who were blind guides and were leading people astray from devotion to God. And, you know, it's hard for us sometimes to put that together with the words to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are to love those that are enemies, and we are to pray for their salvation, But when it comes to individuals who may be leading someone to hell that are deceiving people, taking them away from that devotion to Christ, the strongest condemnation is given to those individuals in the New Testament. Listen to how Peter describes the insolence of these men just going through what we read. He describes them as bold and arrogant or bold and rebellious. The word bold means that they are reckless and defiant. Arrogant refers to an individual who is determined to please himself at all costs. It's all about him. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They slander angels and demons. They may not even believe in them or any kind of a supernatural power at all, and they may simply be so warped in their own thinking that, again, it's just about their teaching. And they blaspheme in matters they do not understand, like brute beasts living by their fallen nature. They are openly immoral. They carouse in broad daylight. They uh, revel in their pleasure. They have eyes full of adultery, which means they view every woman as a potential partner or sexual object. They never stop sinning. They prey on those who are weak. They look for new converts or people that maybe are not grounded in the truth, and they seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. In fact, the word that's used there to describe an expert is someone who is trained in it, like an athlete would train for competition. They are an accursed brood under God's curse. And the illustration that Peter uses to describe these men is Balaam, this false prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, We read about him in uh, the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, and again in chapter 31. Uh, We're not going to read that. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what was going on there. Balaam was a false prophet who was hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And this is at the time when Israel was coming out of the wilderness, going to the promised land, and they went on the east side of the Jordan, and they had to go through the land of Moab. And the king of Moab was afraid of them, and so he hired Balak, this false prophet, to curse them. And God warned Balaam and said, Do not go with them, and do not curse my people. And still he went. And he did it for money, for greed, for payment, and three times he would speak against Israel. But even more than that, when God restrained him by the voice of a man speaking through this donkey, this beast that he was riding on, Balaam still counseled the Moabites that if he could not pronounce God's curse on them, that the way that they could defeat the Israelites would be to seduce them. And Balaam is the one, in chapter 31 we read, who who um, encouraged the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men and entice them to join in the worship of Baal, the worship of a pagan god. And many of the Israelites did that and 24,000 Israelites died because of their actions. These false teachers are just like Balaam. They, uh, again, try to lead people away from Christ They have a message of greed or sexual immorality, and they are trying to take advantage of people. You know, it's interesting, this morning I got up, maybe some of you get the Pioneer Press too. Um, I looked at the Sunday paper, opened it up, and right there on the front page, today's edition, is a story about a guy up in Pine County who called the girls brides of Christ, and he was Christ. A false teacher his name was Victor Bernard and what he was doing was he was leading a cult that was up there and for those who were in his cult he was gathering 10 young maidens for his sexual pleasure And he was promising them that if they would have sex with him, you know, that because he was Christ, this would be this great blessing on his life, on their life, excuse me, and that uh, they would be part of this group in a very special way. Well, his actions were discovered. People came out. They had been sworn to secrecy, but people came out, told what's happening, and this guy is now on the run, and I hope they catch him soon. He's charged with 59 counts of sexual assault and rape. What's interesting is I was reading the article is that um, this guy was part of a group called The Way International back in the 70s and 80s. Some of you may have heard that. A man named Victor Paul Werewolf who led a cult who did the very same thing. This guy who's 52 years old was part of that cult. He kind of learned the same behavior and way to seduce women and do that again. And it keeps repeating itself. It's exactly what Peter is talking about here, that there are wicked men just like this who claim to be Christian, who claim to be speaking for Christ, but it's a false gospel. Now last week I talked about some of the other cults. I mentioned different groups and also some of the ways that people try to get into the church and preach a gospel that's not a true gospel. But today I want to broaden that a little bit more too because I think one of the areas that we need to look at and be aware of are the powerful messages being sent by movies, television, and music today. Filmmaker George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, said at the Academy Awards in 1993, he said, all of us who make motion pictures are teachers. Teachers with very loud voices. You can put that up on the screen. That all of these individuals who make movies or television programs are teachers with very loud voices. And that's true. And that's why when we watch things like that or we're looking at a movie that's being told or a story that's being told or television shows, we need to ask ourselves, what are the messages that they are teaching? What are they saying about life, about family, about marriage, about what's important in life or how to find pleasure and happiness and fulfillment? What are the values being taught or what's the message in songs being written today? What do they say about sex? Do they promote violence and rebellion? Do they promote alcohol and drug use? Do they promote suicide or adultery or rape or homosexuality? What are the messages in them? I think of one teacher who a number of years ago gave his students an assignment to find four songs that weren't Christian with positive messages. Just take the music that you listen to as a teenager and find four songs that have positive messages and they couldn't do it. So much of what they hear, so much of what's being played is really discouraging or depressing or dealing with very immoral subject matter. And what don't they say? What don't they teach? Today, there are people... Uh, who are being disciplined, if you will, for having a Christian message in a secular audience. I think of not only the controversy that was about Duck Dynasty, but here even recently, I just read this week, again, a home and garden television. I think that'd be a pretty innocuous kind of station, home and garden stuff. There was uh, two men who are evangelical believers that were doing a show on how to flip houses and how to buy and sell and how to do that in a way that's honest and reputable as Christians, Uh, but their show was canceled because they were a little bit too evangelical, these two brothers. It's interesting how having a Christian message today can get you in trouble on certain stations or in public areas. And also, who are the spiritual teachers in America this day? In addition to movies and music, we have a wave of spiritual teachers in America that are not godly, they are not Christian. And in his book, Bad Religion, Russ Duthott, uh, he's a Roman Catholic, he's a columnist, He talked about this wave of spiritual but not religious teachers like Deepak Chopra or James Redfield or Eckhart Tolle or Paul Coelho or Neil Donald Walsh, Oprah Winfrey, Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert's the author of Eat, Pray, Love. And he claimed that their creed has four things in common. What they teach is four things in common that I think are good observations. Number one, he said, they believe that all organized religions offer only a partial glimpse of God or light or being. And so we need to experience God through feeling rather than reason, experience rather than dogma, direct encounter rather than a hand-me-down revelation. In other words, you don't need this. You don't need a revelation from God. What you really need is a feeling or an experience. Neil Donald Walsh writes in his book, Conversations with God. Listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Whenever any of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or reading your books, forget the words. You don't need that. Secondly, they teach God is everywhere and within everything, especially within you. It's the same lie that Satan used in the Garden of Eden when he said to Adam and Eve that, um, you know, really, you don't need God. You can be God. You know, you can be God yourself. And that God doesn't have your best interest at mind. These people say that Again, not only is God everywhere and within everything, but you can encounter God by getting in touch with the divinity that resides inside yourself and soul. At the climax of his book, the alchemist Paul Coelho writes, the boy reached through the soul of the world and saw that it was part of the soul of God. And he saw that that soul of God was his own soul. God's in everything. And you just have to get in touch with your inner self. Thirdly, they teach that sin and evil are largely illusions that will ultimately be reconciled rather than defeated. There is no hell save the one we make for ourselves on earth. There is no final separation from the being that all our beings rest within. Elizabeth Gilbert assures her readers, there is no such thing in this universe as hell except maybe in our own terrified minds. And then fourthly, They teach that perfect happiness is available right now. Heaven is on earth. Eternity can be entered into at any moment by any person who understands how to let go, let God, and let themselves be washed away in love. James Redfield wrote, at some point everyone will vibrate highly enough so that they can walk into heaven in our same form. And Coelho adds, I do believe in life after death, but I also don't think it's that important. What's important to understand is that we are also living this life after death now. What a crock. That's a theological term you can write down. This is just nonsense. I mean, where do these guys get their authority? Is it their own thoughts that they are appealing to, their own experiences? Yeah, that's really what they're doing. There is no authority. There is no uh, proof to back up what they say. There is nothing like the scriptures that are a revelation from God that fit with history, that can be examined, can be read, can be studied, can be looked at in terms of biblical prophecy that was given and fulfilled. There is nothing like the scriptures. And yet, sadly, millions of people are following these kind of false teachers and they are on the road to hell. Look at where their teaching leads. Peter goes on, and let me read verses 17 to 22. These men are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, and blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true, that a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to wallowing to her wallowing in the mud. Wow. Peter describes their teaching and its consequences. He calls them springs without water. They promise again, but they can't deliver. It's like a thirsty man going there to find something to quench his thirst, but there's no water at their spring. And that's in contrast to Jesus, who is the fountain of living water and who says, if you will drink from me, you will never thirst again. They are mist driven by a storm. They are like clouds that promise rain, but little comes from it. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. The darkest places of hell are reserved for these kinds of false teachers. They mouth empty, boastful words. They claim to have a special knowledge, gnosis. But they are fools in the sight of God. And they do not understand anything when it comes to spiritual truth. They appeal to the lustful desires of the flesh. Their gods are money and power and personal freedom and sexual freedom and pride. They promise freedom to others, but they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. They have a knowledge of God. Some even will claim to have a knowledge of Christ. I mean, Peter is writing about these here, that there are gonna be some who will come into the church, they will hear the gospel, they will know it, they will act like they are Christians, they will talk like they are Christians, but when you listen to them, you will hear things that are red flags. And when you look at their life and their conduct, you'll see things that are red flags that should be going off everywhere. And in the end, because of their rejection of Christ, Peter says that they are actually worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. To have known the way of righteousness and to turn against it leaves these individuals in such a hardened state, and they are even more accountable than if they had never known it at all. Did these individuals lose their salvation? I don't think so. Some people use this passage to say that it is possible to be saved and then walk away and lose your salvation. I don't think that's what Peter's saying here. And the reason I say that is because of the Proverbs that Peter quotes. He says, Of them it is true that a dog returns to its vomit, a sow that is washed, goes back to her wallowing in the mud. What does he mean by that? He means that their true nature was never changed. They were still dogs, and you gotta hear that differently than the pets that we have today that are dogs. I mean, in that day, a dog was an animal that was looked down on. It wasn't uh, kept like a, a pet in a home in the most part. They were wild dogs that were roaming the streets, and that's what these men were like. And a sow that's washing the mud that goes back to being in the mud is just doing what it does by nature. It's like the expression, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. You know, it's just these guys never changed. It's a scary thing to think that it is possible to sound like a Christian, act like a Christian, and know the truth, and yet never really be born again. Never really be changed. And to be part of a church where you've heard the gospel, but you've never humbled yourself, yielded your life to Christ and asked him to forgive you and to change you from the inside out. How do we protect ourselves? What can we do? Well, that's where we're gonna end up here and I wanna take this up on a little bit higher note than where we've been in here. We need to remember that real freedom is found only in Jesus Christ. In John chapter eight, Jesus had this conversation with the religious leaders of his day. And these guys didn't like what Jesus was saying, especially his claims to be God. And, you know, you can understand that. I mean, anytime somebody comes along and says that they're Christ-like This guy up in Pine County was doing. You're going to check that out. So I give them that much. But Jesus had done so many things to demonstrate his power. He spoke like no one else. He did these miracles uh, that were just uh, signs of the Messiah. He did everything that the Messiah would do. And they could find no sin in him. The only thing that they could charge him with was his claim that he is God. And so what does Jesus say to them in John chapter 8? These are powerful He tells us again that there's only one way to heaven. And he said in John 8, 24, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will die in your sins. What sort of man says those things? No ordinary man would say that. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am And he knew that every Jew understood with that phrase, I am meant. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be. And you place your trust in me because no one else has ever dealt with the problem of man's sin. He goes on, he emphasizes the point that only Jesus can set us free. In John 8, verses 31 and 32, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Obedience is important. Following Christ is important. Walking with him in fellowship is important. It matters how we live. In verse 34, he said, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. He's just acknowledging what Peter said. This is Peter quotes Jesus and is saying that in the context of these false teachers. But he said in verse 36, if the Son sets you free you will be free indeed. It is possible to have victory over sin. It is possible to change when we come to Jesus Christ. And then in one of the most profound statements that he ever said, he declares that he is Lord and God. In John 8, 58, he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham existed, I was here it's one of those amazing claims Jesus is identifying himself with that name that was given to Moses when God said I am who I am and Jesus is saying to the people of that generation and to the people of our generation that I am the eternal God and the Jews picked up stones to stone him in that context no man had ever spoken like that They did not believe him. They wanted to stone him, put him to death on that occasion. But Jesus did all of the things that were said that the Messiah would do. And he demonstrated that he is the son of God when he died and rose again. J.C. Ryle made this comment over 100 years ago. He said, what will ultimately produce stable, growing Christians is careful, reverent study and exposition of God's word. That if we're gonna protect ourselves and be growing in our relationship with Christ, we need to be a people that carefully study the word, and I need to be a pastor that carefully preaches God's word. He made this point to his people when he said this, and this is a little bit lengthier quote, but I think it's so good. He said, you have lived in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies are around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. And Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrine, false teachers of every kind abound. And this is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well-armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store in your mind the Holy Scripture. This is what it means to be well-armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. Neglect your Bible and nothing that I know and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you. You are the man or woman that is unlikely to become established in the truth. And I shall not be surprised to hear that you are troubled with doubts and questions about assurance, about grace, about faith, about perseverance. I shall not wonder if I am told that you have problems in your marriage, problems with your children, problems with the conduct of your family, about the company you keep. The world you steer through is full of rocks and shoals and sandbanks. You are not sufficiently familiar either with lighthouses or charts. You are the man who is likely to be carried away by some false teacher for a time. It will not surprise me if I hear that one of these clever, eloquent men can make a convincing presentation that is leading you into error. You are in need of ballast truth. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves. Do you hear what he's saying? He is emphasizing again how important it is that we are a people who know and apply God's word to our life. And if we do not know it, and if we are not steeped in the scripture, we are ripe for some kind of false teacher or false teaching to come along and captivate us and take us astray from Christ. And I, I say this today too for the sake of those who may be listening you know, on the internet or on a CD. If you are part of a church where the Bible is not being consistently taught, find a church where you can get that kind of teaching. Teaching about grace and mercy, but teaching also about the need for obedience and the fact that there is a judgment to come. Find a preacher who will teach you the gospel according to Peter and the apostles who will declare the whole counsel of God. Why is this important? It's because what we believe affects the way we live and it has eternal consequences. Steve Garber wrote a book called Visions of Vocation. I just finished reading it, and it was a very interesting book about work and faith, but in it he told this story that I'm going to share with you as we end today. He said, One of the surprising notes of history is that Charles Dickens and Karl Marx were writing at the same time, in the same city, about the same thing. They both saw the consequences of capitalism without a conscience. They saw the oppression and the suffering of people in their cities, the working conditions for the poor, for children. They saw the homeless and the needy in their generation. But they had two different visions of how the world could be and should be. Charles Dickens wrote many works, but his most famous is A Christmas Carol. It's the story of a heartless, cold businessman who is indifferent to the suffering of his employee and his fellow citizens. But it is a story of redemption. And Ebenezer Scrooge is changed in that story by the grace of God and becomes a generous man, a good man a man who pays a living wage to his employee, a man who is concerned about the health of his son, Tiny Tim, a man who gives back to help the poor and the needy in their city and in their country. He is changed by the grace of God. And because of the hope that that story offers, there are millions today. I mean, it's being told every year, every Christmas season, People watch it because of the hope that it gives. But in contrast, Karl Marx wrote his book, Das Kapital, which was a critique of capitalism and a call for the proletariat to rise up in rebellion, in a revolution, and overthrow their capitalist oppressors. But what it resulted in was another system of oppression. And the people who adopted his political philosophy and his view of the world The result of that belief was that millions of people died in the last century, all across Europe and Russia and Asia and Latin America. Two different visions of what the world could be and should be. Two roads that are set before us as well. That one road promises freedom, but it leads to death. Jesus Christ promises freedom And it leads to life. And thank God that there is the hope of redemption and change in our world. And that we can be instruments of grace in it. And we can proclaim that hope to the people who need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of your grace even as we sang this morning. How amazing it is that you should love us in spite of our sin that you would send your Son to die for us in spite of all that we had done, undeserving, rebellious, defiant of you and of your Word. And in your mercy, you sent Jesus to be our Savior. And God, thank you that you have opened our eyes to see your Word, to see your Son, and we have come into a relationship with you. If you are here today and you've never had that experience and you want to know Jesus and you want to be forgiven of your sins and to have eternal life, would you just turn to him today and ask him to come into your life, acknowledge him as Lord, confess your sin to him and ask for his forgiveness and say, Jesus, would you forgive me as sinner? And would you be my savior and Lord? I want to live in that hope that you alone can bring. Thank you, Jesus, that you have set us free. Amen.